Welcome to Risk Ready, presented by the Private Risk Management Association. Hello, everyone. This is Spencer Holden, the host of PRMA's Insurance Thought Leader Series. PRMA exists to serve insurance professionals dedicated to the high net worth space. If you're not part of our movement, we certainly hope you'll join us. Today, I'm so excited to have on our show Charles Williamson, the CEO of Vault. Charles is certainly a well-known and highly respected leader in the high net worth personal insurance space. He's often defined by his ability to lead high-performing teams and foster their unique talents, which he's proven over more than two decades of insurance leadership. One attribute I love about you, Charles, is your competitive nature, it, whether that be in the marketplace or against yourself as an avid CrossFit athlete and your former career as a triathlete. You work hard to win, and I love the grit. Charles, honored to have you on our show today. Look forward to hearing your thoughts. Thanks a lot, Spencer. Great to spend some time with you. You know, um, we had not been actively involved in PRMA until this year. Uh, this year was my first conference. This year was my first year as a trustee, and I've really gotten to appreciate the, the role the organization plays in helping to further our cause with, you know, all the constituents within the high network marketplace. So I'm happy to be here and, and spend time with you and, and share whatever I can. Well, and I, I appreciate those thoughts about PRMA. Certainly it's been exploding and really excited about the future as we uh, continue to grow. Um, we, I don't know if you're aware, we just passed 4,000 members on the way to 5,000. So it's, right. it's really been quite a success story. Um, Charles, I want to start by just getting into your brain a little bit about when you started Vault, you know, a little over five years ago, you obviously saw a lane that you could take, an opportunity in the marketplace, a need in the marketplace. Could you talk a little bit about your brainchild, what you saw, and 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 why you've built what you built? Sure, and you know, like a lot of things, the, there's a number of factors that were all kind of present at the same time that made us want to start Vault in 2017 when we did. Um, you know, if you had followed the scene back then, um, there was tremendous consolidation going on. I mean, but, you know, in kind of the, the mid-2000s, there was Atlantic Mutual, Fireman's Fund, Ace, Chubb, AIG, et cetera. And, and, and in just a few short years, all those companies had become one. So there were far fewer competitors. Uh, you know, middle market DNO, there's probably 35 companies selling that product. And in, in high net worth in 2017, there was, you know, four or five. So, so that was interesting to us. And then obviously we all know the fabulous demographics of the high net worth space. You know, there's there's 40 or so billion dollars of available premium out there. I think we all think, and, and we believe we, the independent agency channel and us specialists have only reached a fraction of that. So so that's that was there. And then, you know, this this segment grows more than three or four times the U.S. economy at large. So it's a it's a tremendous segment. All those things were going on. Um, we saw an opportunity to do some different things with technology. Um, and there was a, a small group of passionate, experienced people who wanted to do the hard work that it takes to kind of build a company. So all those things kind of came together at the same time. And um, and that's why we why we did what we did. So, so maybe for the listener who doesn't know a lot about Vault or doesn't represent Vault, because you have been rolling out methodically and systematically throughout the country, maybe talk a little bit about the value proposition and what you would want a broker to know about your company that's sort of unique, because it, it is unique what you're building. 
Yeah. So look, there are certain things in our business, in our space that are table stakes, right? You've got to have strong financial rating. You've got to have a broad product. You've got to have capacity and expertise to handle the high limit complex needs of the high net worth client. And so that's table stakes and we have that. Um, where I think the real differentiator for us and some things we've tried to take advantage of is first of all, we, we tried to be a very services oriented organization. And we, uh, for instance, the digital, digital services for clients, you know, since our, since our founding, uh, almost 100% of all of our policy transactions have been digital. Um, close to 90% of our payment transactions are digital. So these were native to us. 90, 99% of our quoting transactions are digital. So we, you know, we were fortunate to build the company with 2018 vintage technology. And so we made digital just a way of life. And that is a tremendous experience for clients, brokers, and for ourselves, quite frankly, from an expense management standpoint. Um, same thing on claim services. We know that at the end of the day, the, you guys are selling claims and clients are buying claims and you've got to be great at claims and you've got to come at claims from an understanding that you are not really just adjusting and, 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 and remunerating a claim, but you're actually you know, putting the client back, getting their life back together. And so philosophically, we approach it that way. If you look at our Google and Trustpilot ratings online, we're, we're close to 5.0. We are killing it on claim service. We understand it. We take it very seriously. Um, and we constantly check in with our clients and agents how we're doing. Um, but probably the most powerful um, you know, thing that's differentiated us, and it's more pervasive now than ever, you know, we bring kind of a specialty underwriting attitude to the high net worth. We, we take every risk, especially the bigger, more complex ones, and we custom make a solution to fit that client that also works for us. And that's where our unique structure of blending an ENS company and an admitted company under one, one front door has been game changing both for us and for our distribution partners who up until now have found ENS very difficult to access. We saw this coming five years ago. I, I can't pretend I saw it coming to the degree it's happening today, but uh, but we saw this convergence and we built ourselves and structured ourselves to, to do that. Um, and we, we think we've demystified, you know, everything around ENS and, and it's just made it that much simpler to access. So this is what agents are responding to and why I think we've had, you know, a lot of the success we've had. So so let's go there with the ENS. I think that's an, an a great topic, especially right now, what we're experiencing in, in the marketplace. Uh, I I never thought that I would live in the ENS world, and that's exactly where I live today. It used to be the one-off, and, and now it's more the rule. Uh, the ENS market is, the, the, the back end of it is very complicated and confusing to the broker. I don't think the broker community truly understands capacity and where capacity comes from and why it isn't always there. Um, I'd love if you could, just from an educational standpoint, talk a little bit about the ENS market and the mechanism of it uh, for, for, for a broker, not a consumer standpoint, and, and help us understand sort of what this new world is that we live in. Yeah. Um, to me, like everything, it starts with the client. And I, I, I would submit to you 
and everybody listening that clients don't care. You know, clients want great coverage at a fair price, and they want it wrapped with great service that they can rely on. So whether you're selling them an, an admitted policy or a non-admitted policy, that's what they want. And so we focus on that as the value proposition, uh, number one. And I think a lot of a lot of brokers have struggled with that concept, and I think it's something they have to come around on because it's it's here to stay. Um, but then more more to your point, um, you know, ENS allows us to bring solutions to customize coverage and price and limit based on our capabilities and, and our return criteria, as well as what the client needs. And it allows us to do it fast. It allows us to do it real time. It allows us to do it without the insane regulatory process that you have to go to to, to, to change an admitted product. And so the whole, in a dynamic market like now, where we've been in double digit inflation for two years in a row, where there's no let up of social inflation or you know, litigation, where the reinsurance market is unlike anything I've ever seen, ENS affords you the possibility to continue bringing solutions to clients and, and remain sustainable. The, the regulators, you know, they're protecting consumers. They're not protecting our consumer by and large. They're, they're focused on, you know, the three and four and $500,000 home or, or lower. They're focused on simple auto, you know, minimum limit auto customers. That's not our world. Our world, our clients demand something, you know, far more complex and it doesn't fit into that traditional admitted box that the regulator works under. So this is why I think it's critical for what we do every day in terms of bringing solutions. And I think it's, you know, where we're going to see the market continue to evolve. And I'll spend as much time on reinsurance as you want and kind of go down that rabbit hole. But I wanted to, you know, give a little color on you know, ENS itself and why I think it's so vital for our, our collective ability to keep keep bringing solutions. It, you, you remind me of a conversation I had with an underwriter just last week where a Florida homeowner's policy increased substantially and they were holding their hat on the fact that it's an admitted product and that it's staying in the admitted product uh, world. And and I asked, well, why does that matter? And they didn't really answer to me, but it just sounded good that it was still in the standard market. Um, certainly the guarantee fund wasn't going to do anything with these. I limits. mean, you know, you know, what's you know, what's perverse. And, and this is, again, these are pet peeves of mine, but, you know, you think about some of the biggest ENS companies in the world, you know, are owned by Berkshire Hathaway and AIG and some of these giant balance sheet versus some of these Florida companies that are, yes, they're admitted, but they're they're one claim worth away from bankruptcy, which and we've seen that in the last year. And that, I never really understood why, you know, the distribution thinks that way, because you're not doing the you're not doing your client a service. You're right. Six uh, Florida insurers went bankrupt this year and 30 are still on watch from the insurance department. So I grew up under the, the, the premise that we can insure anything if we could get the right price. Um, everything was insurable. And now I'm in a situation where I literally can't find a product for a California home or a Florida home that isn't properly mitigated. Why, why can't you just charge the right price for what you think you need to charge and I'll write the policy for you? Why is so sometimes there just isn't a market? Yeah, great question. And, you know, I think one of the, 
one of the answers to that is, you know, kind of a foundational understanding of the high net worth market. You know, our, our client, I'm, I'm in, um, I'm in Palm Beach, Florida today. And if you look across the way, you see all these amazing homes, but they're, they're all in one place. They're all on like this five mile stretch of sand that's facing the Atlantic Ocean. And if you think about Los Angeles or Beverly Hills or, or the Hamptons, you know, our wealthy people like to live in beautiful places and they kind of, they kind of converge around each other. So at the end of the day, our business is very much a capacity and catastrophe business. And so whether you're, you know, a giant balance sheet like Chubb or a small balance sheet, like a new company like us, there, there's finite, you know, risk that you can take. And I think climate change and the reinsurance marketplace and, and all these inflation things have really challenged all of us now to look at our balance sheet differently and understand what risk we're taking and how much we can take. And so that's what you're seeing. Like, and, and, um, you know, we're all very much dependent on reinsurance to support our business. Um, whether it's, you know, from our own balance sheet management or meeting the needs of the rating agencies, you know, my capital base only allows me to take a certain amount of risk uh, directly. The rest of it, I've got to use reinsurance in order to support my overall portfolio, right? And and that's true, again, no matter if you're the biggest company in our space or, or the smallest. And And reinsurance is now getting much, much harder to get and much more expensive. And there's a lot of reasons why reinsurance is getting harder to get, but let me let me touch on a few because I don't think, you know, some of these obscure reinsurance concepts aren't necessarily, you know, household conversations for most brokers. Agreed. Um, first of all, you know, climate change is scaring people. Uh, and, and I think justifiably. Um, and so we're looking at more frequent severe events I literally read a piece this morning that Munich Re put out that they said, you know, we're not necessarily saying there are going to be more storms, but the severity of the storms are definitely going up. So that's one thing. There's this concern about just the size and magnitude and frequency of events. Um, number two, inflation. Uh, every Everything you buy, if you're replacing a home, if you're replacing a car, it all costs more. And that shows up, you know, in the claim settlement process in a very big way. Um, and, and that needs to go into when I factor my ultimate loss calculations, inflation matters a lot. And, and for us, we're using a 12% inflation factor versus last year. That's after 7% for, for last year. So 19% two years running is our view. And I think we're kind of in the middle. Some have even a, mo a more extreme, extreme view. Um, then you get to kind of reinsure balance sheets. And this is where macroeconomic issues kind of come into play. But take a look at Germany, Swiss Re, Munich Re, and, and Hanover Re, three of the biggest companies in the world of reinsurance. They've had two things this year really knock them off their game from a balance sheet standpoint. One is as interest rates go up, their entire bond portfolio gets marked to market downward. So now they have a smaller balance sheet. And the fact that all those three companies happen to be European, you know, they're 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 running their balance sheet in euros, but they're paying their claims in dollars. 
And everybody that pays attention, everybody that vacationed in Italy this summer knows that the dollar is very strong. And so that puts them, you know, in an, in an adverse balance sheet position with regard to currency. So those are two major things affecting reinsurance balance sheets. And lastly, and this gets very esoteric on reinsurance, but there's this concept of retro. Retro simply means reinsurance for reinsurers, okay? So it's where Hanover and Swiss Re go to get protection for their risk. And over the last five or eight years, retro has been widely available and it's been fairly cheap. And, and the reason for that is pension funds, there was nowhere to invest your money as a pension fund and make any yield on the interest side because interest rates were so low. So pension funds were pumping into to cat reinsurance over the last dozen years. And for the first half or so of those years, they actually made good money. Well, the last three years has been a disaster for the retro market and for cat reinsurers broadly. And so now all that pension fund money has headed for the hills because they now have more attractive. You can now make 5% on a government bond. So they would rather do that than lose money doing cat reinsurance. So a lot of moving pieces there, maybe a lot more detail than you wanted to hear, but these are all the you know, kind of factors that are contributing to a shortage of a basic commodity that we all need to be able to provide you that coverage that you want for your client. It, it was not too much. In fact, um, I think we need to, and I know Diane's on with us, we, we need to really highlight in our advertisement for this podcast that last seven minutes. I, I thought it was exceptional. It, especially, you know, Charles, I, I knew a lot of that, but I had not considered the euro to dollar, which is what 20%, 25%, something like that in the last 18 months. That That is a fascinating part of this that I'd never considered. Do you think now that you're just about, you know, you're over five years old, given all these dynamics, do you think you could build vault if you started today? Or would it just be so many headwinds, it'd be, it'd be tough. I am pretty sure, just to be completely transparent, I think, you know, we would struggle to raise the capital to start the company. And we were lucky we had Allied World as a seed investor. Um, and, um, but I do think the, the you know, there's not a lot of capital chasing ca catastrophe insurance and reinsurance right now. And I think that's what a lot of the reinsurance brokers are frustrated about. H historically, if a market got like this, new money would start lining up. And, you know, Berkshire Hathaway has always been on the sharp end of that, uh, as well as the flowers. And at least from, you know, what I'm hearing in the marketplace, those firms are not moving to come in. And there's very little interest in other firms coming in. So, yeah, it's just a different market than we were, you know, five years ago. And, and certainly when Pure started, you know, 12 or 15 years ago, it's just a very different market for capital. Com completely. Well, we have a little bit of time left. I, I want to walk away from insurance for a moment because you have a, a unique ability, as I discussed in the intro, about building teams and high-performing teams. And I know culture is really important to you and has been with, with all the leadership positions you've had. And I, I love when you go to Vault's website and you see these sayings like, fight for what's right, we are family, think big, act small. 
Now, many of our our listeners are agency owners or their managers who are charged who are charged with building teams and cultures. Can you just spend a little bit of time uh, with your years of experience and the importance of culture in an organization, and just sort of your? I know it's tough to to do this in five minutes, but just your philosophy on on culture and teamwork. Um, yeah, so just. The story I always tell is, you know, my formative years at AIG when we were the, you know, back in the mid '90s when my career really started to take off. If you if you ask any executive at AIG, you know, what's the um, what's the greatest value proposition to the company? Everybody would say it's our AAA credit rating. We've got a trillion dollar balance sheet, et cetera, et cetera. Great. Uh, okay, what's our second most important value proposition? It's our global footprint. We're in 140 countries. We've got all these, you know, non-correlated businesses, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe, maybe number three, you would have gotten the people. And maybe not. But I learned a lot from that time. And I learned how important, as I formed my own opinion on what's important, and especially in 2022, you know, I came to believe it ultimately it's all about the people. And you have to have people that are passionate and aligned and culturally a fit. You, know, you can hire, you know, you can hire a great claims person, but if they're a bad fit, it's toxic to the organization. So what we've done since we started Ball was we've really tried to get ownership of everybody in the place on who we bring into the company. And and we have them participate in the recruiting, the hiring, the screening, um, you know, the orientation and I'm super proud. Over 70% of the people we hire are referred by our team. And, and I think if you ask like HR organizations, you know, 20% is a great number. And we're more than three times that. And we're super proud of it. We've gotten our team to buy in to the fact that we're only as good as the next man up or next woman up that we bring in. And that ownership has been huge for us. Um, you know, we've gone from, you know, five or six of us to 280 people today, and we've done it with that kind of mindset. So that's number one, like who we bring in and how that how that goes down. Um, number two is the experience we give people. Um, and we believe really good people want to be empowered. They want a chance to shape how things are done. They want a chance to have influence. They want to feel like their work matters. And so we try to create that environment. And if we have a if we have a need to solve something in the company, we put it back to the team and say, "Hey, here's here's the result is not where it should be. We need you to help us figure it out." And you know, nine out of ten times, it's that solution that we're implementing that that which the team develops, and that's been huge because again, pe good people want ownership. They wanna they wanna believe they're making a difference. Um, and then similarly, you know, we we like to hire what we like to hire intellectually curious people. Like how to you know, how do things work? I, I'm I am very fortunate in my career that early on I got moved around. You know, I did I did accounting, I did claims, I did sales and marketing, I did underwriting. I obviously had a commercial career before my personal lines career. And all of those things have made me a student of the business and far better at what I do than I ever could have been without that experience. And so we try to hire people like that. And we try to hire people that have a curiosity about the business because we think they'll bring more solutions. They'll bring a broader way of thinking about opportunities and challenges. Um, 
And that my favorite one of the things you mentioned, I love I love that think big, act small. You know, we want to be a big company, but we believe you gotta think about details, you gotta take care of the little things, you've gotta constantly be hungry, not become bureaucratic. You know, those are the things that think small means to us while we're you know, act small, I mean means to us while we're thinking big. I love it. Diane, that was awesome, wasn't it? It was fantastic. Charles Williamson, you demand. Thank you so <laughs> Thank much. You. That was fun. I appreciate so much everything that you've done. We'll talk soon. Thank you for joining us today for the Risk Ready Podcast. We encourage you to subscribe, download, and review our podcast. Until the next time, stay risk ready.